This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, Brian, you know I love to play music or sing at times during <laughs> our podcast. And for this week's episode, I found just the ticket. Let me take you back to 1973. Let's keep on looking for the love. Very well played, Katie. And thank you. Very well played. With a hat tip to Maureen McGovern. Thank you, Maureen, for that tune. And Brian, today we're going to spend some time looking for the light to try to understand what happened during the midterm elections and what they mean for the future of the country. As we know, the Democrats took the House, flipping dozens of Republican districts, but the Republicans kept control of the Senate, gaining a number of seats by beating incumbent Democrats. Well, this is like Christmas morning for me, Katie, so I'm so <laughs> excited about this show. And we've invited one of the people I most admire, Amy Walter, a terrific political analyst, to talk with us today about what happened, where we go from here. She's the national editor of the Cook Political Report, which, by the way, is my favorite beach read. Highly <laughs> recommend it to all of you. Then we're going to be hearing from some of you, our listeners, because voters from all across the country are calling in with questions or interesting perspectives. And I'm very excited about that as well. And in the second half of the show, we're going to hear from presidential historian Doug Brinkley. He's going to talk about the big picture, how the midterms will change the trajectory of Donald Trump's presidency, and also what lessons he can learn from the way past presidents dealt with opposition congresses. Doug Brinkley, one of my favorites. But first, let's talk to another one of my favorites, Amy Walter. We got her on the line yesterday morning, fresh off the midterms. 
Walter. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Whoo! I'm very <laughs> glad to be here. I uh, it's the my day after the election um, mood and mode, which is I just am really subsisting on adrenaline, caffeine, a little bit of sugar, and a lot of peanut butter, and that's it. That's all that's keeping me alive right now. Nice. Well, you know, it seems to me that both sides are claiming victory, certainly compared to 2010 when Barack Obama famously self-described his experience as a shellacking. It seems to be more of a mixed verdict for President Trump. In fact, he portrayed it this way, quote, tremendous success tonight. Thank you to all. So, How can we see such different perspectives on the same results? They both actually can be correct that um, both sides can find something that they really liked out of this midterm election. And it's something, Katie, that we'd been talking about, the Cook Report, for quite some time because of two things. One, just how polarized we are as a country now. Um, We saw it, obviously, in 2016, the difference between the popular vote and the Electoral College vote. And how it's playing out in a midterm year is that the House vote, which it looks like Democrats will have won by about nine points, somewhere north of 30 seats. But in the Senate, where the map was decidedly red, Democrats defending 10 states that Trump carried, uh, five of them that Trump carried by double digits, the president remained popular and his success, his popularity helped to boost Republican candidates there. And so we had two different elections take place on election night in two very different Americas. As I'm beginning to break down 2018 in my own head, it seems like we're just seeing an acceleration of all the trends we've witnessed in the last few years in politics, kind of culminating in the 2016 election of Donald Trump. This big educational divide between white-collar, college-educated whites and blue-collar, non-college-educated whites, a divide between cities and close-in suburbs on the one hand and exurbs and rural areas on the other, whites versus minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything new or different that we learned in this election that we didn't know going in? I don't know that we learned anything particularly new. And I think this is what's sort of fascinating about this election is that if you look at the exit polls, for example, of the 2016 election, that basically told you the story of the 2018 election. We've had an incredible amount of stuff happen in between 2016 and 2018, and yet we ended up essentially in the same place. And the amazing thing for the president, again, is, as, as you noted earlier, go on to say that he was successful, right? The places where he campaigned, the candidates won. That is true. The places where he was popular, candidates won. Absolutely true. But there are a whole lot of places that we know that the president carried in 2016, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, where Republicans didn't do very well. Um, Those are going to be, to me, those are the sorts of places I'm going to be spending a lot more time looking at as we get into 2020. And the other question, I think, is whether this is a permanent realignment that we're seeing or whether this is one that is really unique to President Trump. Are these districts that, for example, in the Houston suburbs that went for Mitt Romney by double digits and then flipped to a Democrat this year. 
are these now permanently in the Democrats' camp, or are they going to move back to their sort of Republican DNA once Trump's no longer in office? And we're not going to have the answer to that right now, but I do think that what we have today, instead of a a president with a broad coalition, he has a narrow but deeply committed coalition. One more thing just to recognize is, again, the president definitely had some successes. It's always better to have a bigger Senate majority than a smaller one. And it will be a more committed Trump majority. Remember some of his biggest critics, Jeff Flake, Bob Corker from Tennessee, they're no longer in the delegation. He doesn't have to worry about the Mavericks so much anymore, uh, potentially denying him Supreme, if there's another Supreme Court opening or other judicial openings. But I don't think we have any idea how this president is going to react to Democratic Congress, the subpoenas, the oversight. And at the same time, we have no idea how Democrats are going to react to not knowing how Trump is going to react. It it feels to me a little bit like you're handling a very uh, unstable substance. You know, it's nitroglycerin or something, Mm -hmm. and you're passing it around between each other. And at some point, you know that something's going to explode. I just don't know who's going to be holding it when it explodes. Well, you know, it's interesting, as Brian and I have listened to the analysis ad nauseum, um, you know, one one side posits that it actually is helpful to President Trump to have an enemy. And now that enemy, obviously, will be the democratically controlled House of Representatives and Nancy Pelosi, uh, which you can only imagine sort of the vitriol that's going to be coming her way ASAP. So you have no idea in terms of the dynamic we might be witnessing between the House and the White House? Right, because the president uh, is so unpredictable. Well, he's predictably unpredictable, right? I mean, we I think we know that he's going to punch back at any subpoena or oversight or question by Democrats. But the Democrats could also put in front of Congress some of the cabinet members or the administration officials who, quite frankly, haven't had to answer any questions for the last two years on some pretty significant policy, whether that's healthcare or immigration or trade. And their answers to those questions could be a bigger problem for Republicans than the president can acknowledge right now. I mean, I think he's focused very specifically on well, if the Democrats try to impeach me, they're going to go too far. Or if Democrats try to impeach Judge Kavanaugh, that's not what the American public wants. They'll show they're just obstructionists. But what if they start bringing folks from HHS or DHS up to the Hill and start asking questions about the immigration process on the border? What about asking questions about the EPA and some of the deregulatory efforts? What if they start asking questions that Republicans and the administration don't have very good answers for or uncover scandals that previously had gone uh, unknown or unremarked. This is, you know, again, this is not just theoretical. These folks in, in Congress do have subpoena power. Amy, per your point about impeachment, I think it's pretty clear that the Democratic leadership, at least, has no interest in that from a political perspective. That's right. But... They may not have a choice if and when Robert Mueller issues his report and there's some 
pretty damning accusations in there, um, which there might be, there might not be. But if there are, um, can't you see a process like that derailing whatever the agenda is now that the Democrats are trying to set? Absolutely. And I think there are a lot of question marks about that, as well as requesting the president's tax records, uh, which they can do. But I don't know what legislative accomplishment comes from that. You know, like, what's the what's the reasoning behind that uh, for Congress? And uh, they're going to have to be able to, to make that case pretty cleanly and clearly for it to look like it's substantive rather than just a fishing expedition uh, that's focused on just embarrassing the president. Speaking of that, yeah. Amy, I was going to ask you about, you know, there's been a lot of debate internally, Amy, about the direction of the Democratic Party with a sort of fight over the heart and soul. Should it be the moderate middle? Should it be the party of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders? Did the mid- results of the midterms give us any insight into that? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I think there were uh, many Democrats hoping that there would be a definitive answer to that, especially from places like Florida or Georgia or Texas, where Democrats were running not just as progressives, but their message was, we can win in these diverse states by pumping up turnout among voters of color, younger people who traditionally don't show up to vote in midterm elections. And to do that, you know, we need candidates with interesting stories, and they need to be unapologetic and unafraid to to run as progressives. Well, it looks like all three of those candidates um, will have lost, and I think there is going to be something of a pushback among national Democrats to say, if that message isn't working in Florida, a state that is a battleground in 2020, if that isn't working in Georgia or Texas, two states that Democrats have been saying now for years, demographically, are are turning their direction, then it makes it really hard to say that that's the right message up against Donald Trump in 2020. At the same time, some of the most centrist candidates lost. Joe Donnelly yeah. in Indiana, so you're kind of damned right? If, you're sort of damned if you do Dam- and damned that's if right. you don't, right? That's well, right. the centrist so, candidates lost, in fairness, in much more difficult states, in states where Trump had like a 55 percent approval rating, where he yep. won with a much larger margin. But in the closer states that Trump won in 2016, but the Democrats won on Tuesday in the Midwest, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, for example, the three states that made a difference in the presidential race, moderate Democrats or relatively center-left Democrats were the ones who were able to prevail. And they were able to show the Democrats can still win in those places, which I suppose was a little bit in doubt before uh, this yeah, election. Yeah, and I think, you know, Tammy Baldwin is a great example of this senator from Wisconsin. No one is going to call her a moderate. She is one of the more liberal members of the United States Senate. And yet there is, and I hate this word because it gets overused, but I'm going to use it, is there's an authenticity to Tammy Baldwin. People know exactly who she is. Same with Sherrod Brown in Ohio. He's sort of a populist liberal in Ohio, a state that not only did Donald Trump carry, but Republicans carried the governorship there. They have a uniqueness to their state and an attachment to their state that really sets them apart. Again, not because of where they you know, it's, it's, they didn't tack necessarily to the center ideologically, but 
personality-wise and their, the attention that they pay to the state pays dividends. And, and so I think really, uh, and Katie, I've been thinking about this for a while, that you know, folks like me in Washington, for so many years, we've been looking at the presidential primary process on an ideological scale, right? Uh, do you have the more left or the more right candidate? How conservative, how liberal um, do you need to be? I think normal people, and so I'm not a normal person, I recognize this, normal people, primary voters <laughs> are not looking at these ideological scales and, and sort of checking off a list, right? Well, they right. fit on these six criteria. They're looking for the the personal attachment, the personal story, the way that they feel that they can connect there. And Donald Trump was a perfect example of that. He up uh, he was not a straight down the line conservative Republican on so many issues. He broke with Republican orthodoxy, but there was an authenticity to him. And Bernie Sanders, I'm sure you all heard it on the campaign trail too. When I would talk to people who liked Bernie Sanders, some of them were really conservative people. And they said, I I don't agree with anything that he says, but gosh darn it, I like that he stands up for it. He believes in something. Well, that's such an anti-establishment vote, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. And I was having breakfast with, with a friend of mine this morning, and she was saying she thinks we're witnessing a massive realignment, not from left to right, but more populist versus elitist. You know, more, as Brian mentioned, sort of rural and exurban voters versus urban and suburban voters. And that we're more divided on those lines, along those lines, than ideological lines, per se. Um, I I agree with that. And a lot of it is cultural, right? The sense that if I live outside of a major metropolitan area, I have a whole set of life experiences— and viewpoints that people in the suburbs and the cities don't appreciate and they don't understand. And you go into the cities and the suburban areas and they look out at the rural areas and they say, why don't you understand this country is diversifying? This country doesn't look like it did 50 years ago. It's not going to look like that anymore. Stop trying to bring us back there. And that push and pull between, you know, the transformative, right? Here's where we're going in the future and the restorative. Here's who this country is and we want it to remain is that fight that is going to be with us certainly for the next four years. And the real question is how much longer will this tension be the central force in our politics? The one ideological element I would add to this discussion, though, is that the Democrats you mentioned in the Midwest didn't give their Republican opponents an obvious line of attack by saying they were going to abolish ICE or be for impeachment or take some of the kind of harder-edged positions than a number of the more liberal Democrats in the Sun Belt took, which their Republican opponents seem to use very effectively against them. It's, a, it's an interesting point. And look, in those suburban districts, what you found were Democrats who did the following. One, they stayed away, not just from some of the divisive issues like ICE, um, but they also stayed away from impeachment. I didn't hear anything about Russia or Mueller. In fact, the word Trump rarely came up for many of these Democrats who won in these suburban districts. They focused much more on health care. But I do think that this is the ideological fight within the Democratic Party to come on the issue of health care. 
Democrats made that a centerpiece of their election this year, specifically looking to Republicans and their votes in Congress to repeal Obamacare, the um, decision by the Trump administration to continue to fight for um, in the courts to overturn the law. And you saw sort of a split within the party, in, whether they're in conservative districts, more moderate districts, about the question of Medicare for all and what that means. Uh, for some voters, I think they in, interpret it in one way, other voters interpret it another way. But at some point, Democrats are going to have to actually explain what Medicare for all does mean. And what you saw in many of these competitive states was that Republicans were ready to pounce on this issue by labeling Democrats as socialists, right? They want socialized medicine. They're going to take away your access to your doctors. It's going to be trillions of dollars of taxes. And I think uh, in many cases, those attacks didn't work, in part because people don't quite understand what this whole Medicare for all thing is about, but they did very clearly understand what the pre-existing condition fight was about, what drug cost fight was about. That's a day-to-day concern for them. But I think come 2020, this debate over expanding healthcare to include this Medicare for all or single payer versus the president wanting to repeal Obamacare and what would be in its place is going to be a central argument. We asked some people to call in with their questions, concerns, and we have a few people who are nice enough to do just that. So we don't want to keep them on hold indefinitely. And Amy, I know (laughs) they benefit from your insight uh, as well. So let's go to Julie from Kansas, who has a question. Julie, hi, how are you? Hi, Katie. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. You're welcome. Thanks Um, for calling. What's your question? I'm from Kansas, and um, I was so heartened and so excited last night that we did not elect Chris Kobach to be um, our next governor. We actually went Democratic with Laura Kelly, and we had one other district um, where we elected Sharice Davids for the House. Um, But this morning, as I really started to think about it, I started feeling more like these were exceptions. These were two people that were absolutely horrible candidates, and they went Democrat because the Republican option was so incredibly awful. I'm curious what your take is on what this means as a country with a with a red state going Democratic in a couple of different areas. I don't think this is a blue wave for us. I think that these are small exceptions. Amy, what would you say? Yeah, it's a really good point because Democrats were hoping that they could have similar success in other red state governorships where you had an unpopular governor in, in the case of Oklahoma, just like Kansas, that was retiring. Oklahoma had Mary Fallon, who left office, I think, with something like a 15-point favorable rating um, in that state. And uh, the race got very close, but ultimately Republicans prevailed in Oklahoma, South Dakota, another place that has had Republican governors for quite some time. But Democrats had a really appealing candidate in a former rodeo writer um, who had been paralyzed in a rodeo accident, who kept that race very competitive. Ultimately, that race tipped to the Republicans. In Iowa, another state where Republicans have been in charge for a long, long time, they kept the governorship in that state. And so Kansas, really, of, of, of the red states where 
Democrats saw an opening. They had good candidates. They had unpopular governors, or at least maybe a, a sense from voters in that state that it was time to do something new. You know, they, were, they, they could turn a new leaf, try out another party. Uh, only Kansas uh, really delivered on that promise. Wisconsin was a big win for Democrats. You know, they've been trying now. This is the fourth election. They've been trying to unseat Scott Walker, but that's not really a, a red state. So of the of the dark red states, Kansas does definitely stick out. Julie from Kansas, thank you for calling, Julie. Thank you. Okay, we've got uh, Jonathan from Texas. Uh, thanks for calling in, and what's your question? Hi, Katie. Hi, hi Brian. It's so great to, to be speaking with you guys. Um, so my question is, um, I'm, I'm a Jonathan Gutierrez. I'm from uh, the border. I'm a second-generation Texan, born and raised on the border in Laredo. Uh, immigration has always locally been talked about as a positive thing. And Beto, as someone from the border, El Paso, uh, I believe understood and articulated this issue better than anyone I've seen. And so after looking at the margins in the race last night, it looks like a lot of other Texans agreed, too even though it wasn't obviously enough to get him across the finish line. But are there any lessons that um, national Democrats can be learning from how Beto talked about immigration and um, any lessons that can be applied nationwide for um, the elections in the future? I'm really interested in this, Jonathan, too. And I'd love to hear Amy and Brian's take on this, because obviously the cornerstone of President Trump's last-ditch efforts to do well in these midterms was to talk about the caravan pretty much 24-7 and to stoke, I think, some fear about immigrants and the people who were escaping poverty and violence in Central America through Mexico. So, um, and I was pretty surprised how well Beto did. Um, I guess I had read some premature obituaries about him <laughs> prior to election day. But but what about the way that immigration is being portrayed? Does this, you know, go right along party lines, Brian and Amy? And what lessons can national candidates learn from this? I mean, I just view that as such an interesting race because Cruz was about as narrow a red candidate as Texas has produced for a major statewide office in a while. Um, And Texas is still just Republican enough that by consolidating the people who like what Trump's doing, who identify as conservatives, he was able kind of just to get over the line. Um, What Beto did that's different than, you know, any Texas Democrat pretty much for the last 20 years is he was able to take a lot of moderate suburban voters in places outside Dallas and Houston and convince them that he's bigger and maybe a little bit different than a typical national Democrat. And even though he was pretty liberal, per Amy's point about authenticity, people liked him. And a lot of those people just didn't like Ted Cruz or they thought he'd taken his eye off the ball by running for president, spending more time in Iowa than in Texas. So, you know, he was able to come close. But I think some of the ideological positions that he took probably resulted in him being, you know, just short in the end. And before Jonathan goes, Jonathan, what do you hope is in Beto's future? Do you think that, you know, he got a huge influx of money from national Democrats? Uh, He was sort of the it guy of these midterms in many ways. What do you think is in his future? 
Well, as, as someone that's, that's so inspired by watching the type of effect that he's had on grassroots organizing in the state, um, I think that his ability to inspire people to act and to get moving is really, really inspiring for the future of Texas. I'd very much like to see him run his race because I think he still has a, a race and a message that he's still ready to share with the rest of America. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for calling in. It's really nice to talk to you, and thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to talk now to Bailey from Nevada, not Nevada, from Nevada is on the <laughs> on the line. Um, Bailey, hi. Thanks so much for calling in, and welcome to our podcast. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Nice to hear your voice. What is your question or concern? Um, well, I was wondering your take. So in Nevada, we've had a blue wave now twice in both 2016 and 2018. Um, we almost had a, we might have a super majority in our legislature as of 29 votes, so we'll find out. But I'm wondering why, what you think is different about Nevada, where we've had the blue wave that we've kind of expected nationally as a repudiation of Trump politics and other states haven't. Well, you know, Brian is probably a good person to answer that question because his mom is hails from Las Vegas originally. <laughs> and Brian, you spend a lot of time in Nevada. And Amy, I'm sure you could weigh in. And I'm just going to keep quiet and listen to you both. <laughs> yeah, I, I claim status as an honorary Nevadan. Um, well, the big difference in Nevada that has really transformed the state's politics in the last few cycles is the diversifying electorate, particularly in Clark County, which is Las Vegas, also in Reno. Um, and we've seen a surge of Latino voters and also urban and suburban voters who are just voting a heck of a lot more Democratic than they used to. It's also a state where Trump lost um, in 2016, where his approval rating isn't great. And uh, the approval rating of the president has been a pretty good predictor of elections all over the country. Yeah, the, the yeah. fascinating thing to me about Nevada is it, it is different from some of these other Western states. All the Western states are unique. They're all beautiful. I wish I could live in one of them. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, Colorado looks very different than many of its neighbors, not just because it— um, it has a more diverse population, especially Latino and African-American, but also it has had, especially in the last 10, 15 years, a huge influx of college-educated um, white voters. You have a whole bunch of tech companies moving into Colorado, sort of a, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of folks from other states moving to Colorado, especially young people into the Denver area. And that's really transformed Colorado from being a swing state or a red-leaning state to one mm -hmm. that is more purple. Nevada, on the other hand, is one where you do have, a, again, huge influx of population, but it's not um, the same kind of voters. Um, you have a higher proportion of white non-college educated voters in Nevada. They make up a really significant base of vote. What keeps Nevada from being uh, Republican, quite frankly, are the Latino vote and the ability that Democrats have to really energize and turn out and organize and turn that vote out. And that is really a vestige of 
former senator, former majority leader, Harry Reid, who put that mm-hmm. infrastructure in place. You know, Nevada, if it looks much more like more of a working class, blue collar state than uh, a state like Colorado. Bailey, I'm just curious. You sound a little young. Am I, am I right about that? I'm 28. Okay. Well, then you're young. Everybody's young. <laughs> That's to young me, in Bailey. my life. <laughs> that yeah. is super so young. So I'm just curious if you don't mind my asking um, how you voted. And if you don't want to tell us, that's fine too. But how you voted and how you're feeling about the results of the midterms. Um, yeah, I voted blue. I typically always do. Although I think prior to Trump, I would have said Nevada is a state where we do tend to vote Nevada first. I think a lot of Democrats would have loved a third term from our um, Republican governor that is leaving. Mm-hmm. So I, I did vote blue and I am excited about that. And I, the only question I had as a response was I, the Harry Reid machine that you um, alluded to, we really credited as the culinary union. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. what you saw from other unions. Yeah. Other states. Did they go blue or red last night? Because both of our swings, I think we can credit to the culinary unions. Are the unions just not as powerful in other yeah, states? Yeah, no, that's a that's an a, that's a really excellent point. I'm 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 glad that you brought that up. And um, in other states, you're right, where labor has, um, especially states that where Republicans have been in charge, labor unions um, have been undercut by some of the legislation that has been passed in those states places like Wisconsin, for example. I think Michigan is one place where labor remains a very potent force. But you're right, it is Nevada that has some of the best organizing. And it wasn't that unique 20 years ago to have this strong of a labor presence being able to, quote unquote, deliver a state. Um, That's how Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio worked for years, but and Wisconsin, but that's no longer that's no longer the case. Bailey, thank you so much for calling. Really appreciate it. And thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, It was fun talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Amy, thank you so much for spending some time with us uh, hashing this all out. It's complicated, as you said, I think further complicated by no simple narrative and no kind of clear cut takeaway. It's sort of all over the map. But we always appreciate your perspective and insight. Thanks so much for doing this, Amy. Sure, it's a ton of fun. Thanks so much. Brian, I loved hearing from all those listeners, and I want to thank them again for calling in. That was a lot of fun, and we really do appreciate their time. Yeah, I do too. And remember, you can always call in with your questions and comments on the show. Our number is 929-224-4637. Now we're going to take a quick break. And coming up, presidential historian Doug Brinkley... That's right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. From BBC Radio 4. 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Now let's get back to the show. Brian, as you know, Harry Truman once said, there's nothing new in the world except the history you do not know. So we thought it would be helpful and instructive to help us better understand recent events by talking about the past. And who better to do that with us than Doug Brinkley? Doug is a history professor at Rice University. He's written several books about presidents from FDR to Gerald Ford. He happens to be an incredibly nice guy as well. And when I was anchoring the CBS Evening News, I brought him in as our resident historian. So we go way back, Brian. (laughs) And that's where I first met Doug. He's a great guy. So here he is with uh, his take on what happened on the first Tuesday in November. Doug Brinkley. Thanks so much for joining the podcast. We're super excited to have you. Well, thank you, Katie. So surprise, surprise, we're going to look at the midterms from a historical perspective (laughs) with you. Um, (laughs) On average, since World War II, presidents lose 25 seats in their first midterm in the House. Obviously, President Trump performed worse than that. And at a time with a booming economy that 68% of voters say is good. So how do you explain the Republican losses at a time when the economy seems to be doing really well? Well, it's a great question. Um, you know, Donald Trump isn't just a Republican president. Uh, he, he is a movement person, a right-wing movement figure. And because of that, he's had a limited box office appeal. It's been very hard for President Trump to get anywhere around 50 percent in um, public popularity. He's usually around 43, 44 percent. That's low. So he only – he has a frenetic um, appeal to um, a, a certain a segment of the American public, but he doesn't seem to be able to grow his box office any. And hence, um, urban areas in particular seem to be disgusted with President Trump's leadership. Uh, If you really just mapped this midterm election, looked at cities and suburbs, you will see that uh, they're not buying into the Republican program. uh, But rural America is in love with President Trump. It's interesting. James Carville says it's the economy, stupid, but the economy will only take a leader so far, Doug. Exactly, Katie. I mean, the um, economy is important. In fact, some people are are saying Donald Trump should have just run on Kavanaugh and the economy, not Kavanaugh and the caravan. Uh, That may have been a mistake. Hindsight's easy and we'll never know. It's not an empirical 
a fact we can make, but it seems that President Trump uh, made a mistake not just sticking with his economic message. He thought he had to fire up his base on this uh, caravan of Hondurans, uh, you know, marching towards our border. He did put out a, a racist ad that even Fox News had to take down. But how um, do you know that a- didn't work, Doug? How do you know that didn't work? Well, it didn't work because he lost Congress. Um, it, did it help him pick up a Senate seat or two, perhaps? Uh, but the Senate math was pretty much in place. So what he did was disgust a lot of young people. And you're seeing the numbers of young voters uh, coming in. I'm here, Katie, in, in, at Rice University in, in Houston, Texas, and it was Beto mania in the state of Texas. Now, he lost but uh, the Democrats are making um, picked up congressional seats in in Texas. Uh, Trumpians like Will Hurd, who were like should have never lost, uh, lost in Texas uh, because people don't like, particularly people at universities of America don't like the idea of the wall, and particularly don't like racist infused rhetoric that we've heard too often from the president. Doug, I can't think of a an American president in recent history with so narrow an appeal, who sort of never seems to get beyond 50 percent. Am I missing someone? No. I mean, we've had presidents that have done badly in polling. I mean, Harry Truman was At particular moments, of course. Yeah. At particular moments, Harry Truman was at like 27 percent. But um, in, in a course, he's now considered one of our great American presidents. So it means Donald Trump can do something about his predicament, but he would have to pivot to get above that 44. It's frozen with the economy this well, and we haven't engaged in a major new war, and he's frozen at 44. To get up to 50, he would have to do a bipartisan deal, this sort of what's almost become a mythical idea the last two years of Democrats and Republicans doing something big on infrastructure would have to happen. You know, Jack Kennedy won in 1960 by just a margin over Richard Nixon, and Kennedy decided, I'm going to unite the people, and he, he adopted, let's go to the moon by the end of the decade, made technology big, and even brought a lot of so-called pork dollars to place states like Texas and Mississippi and Florida. And so in the end, um, Trump needs to find something that brings in some Democrats and independents, not just be a base politician. And, And I should know this, but what happened to Kennedy in the midterms? Well, you know, Kennedy in 1962 was able to maintain, he had a 62% approval rating in 62, somewhere around that in the 60s, and was able to hold on. Um, they lost a few Senate seats, Democrats, but they're able to keep control of, uh, of the House and Senate. So there's an example of a midterm where Jack Kennedy united the country. That would have been what Trump should have tried for. Instead, he did his own math and realized that he wants to be seen as the savior of the Senate. He had Mitch McConnell working with them. And they've used Paul Ryan as sort of the fall guy. Ryan was somebody who wanted to focus on the economy, and Trump overruled him and said, immigration it is. Um, Historically, when presidents have faced an opposition Congress, as President Trump will starting in January, how have they used that opportunity to advance their agenda or to advance themselves politically? In other words, what lessons should President Trump take from Clinton, Obama, Reagan, and others about how to work with or against an opposition Congress? 
Well, it's going to be a big choice. Remember, we talk a lot about Ronald Reagan befriending Tip O'Neill and Ted Kennedy, um, and they, they became pals. Can Donald Trump become friends with Nancy Pelosi? Can he invite her for dinner? Can he talk to Pelosi and say, look, when the country needs a couple of big things that we all do together, can you bring some votes? Um, can we work together? The problem is the Democrats right now don't want to be in a photo op with President Trump. Um, they're already gearing up for 2020. About 15 Democrats are probably going to end up running for president when it's all said and done. And they're running against Trump's persona, his big mouth, his uh, his uh, racist banter. Yeah, is that sort of depressing? Because what I'm gathering from your comments, Doug, is that it's it's to both parties' benefit to not work together and that Donald Trump seems to thrive when he has someone to demonize, whether it's the media or Democrats. And the Democrats want to continue along this path as well because it will galvanize their base and Democratic voters in general. Exactly right. So we may not have moved um, any the ball forward very much um, after the midterms. People always ask, Doug, you know, are we more divided than ever? I was asked that question yesterday when I was being interviewed. Um, and I don't know. What do you what do you say when people ask that? Do you talk about Vietnam? Do you talk obviously the Civil War? Duh. But do you think it's unprecedented the polarization we're witnessing now? It's extreme. It you have to go back to Vietnam when where country was divided between hawks and doves when uh, civil rights exploded and it was, you know, George Wallace versus Martin Luther King. Um, the problem I see right now is the Democrats are going to go after t- Donald Trump's tax returns and the Mueller investigation's coming. And uh, Trump's going to say uh, that this is harassment. I'm being harassed by the Democrats. That's going to be the big new word, um, congressional harassment of the president. Um, and the Democrats That's are going to say no. That's ironic, isn't it? It is. He's going to be complaining <laughs> about harassment, and there's going to be a demand for And the Democrats are saying, we want transparency in government. Those words, transparency versus harassment, I think are going to be used coming up. But we've seen it worse in American history. Uh, I was thrilled last evening. I look for little things that are, as a historian, they jump out at me, that there were two Native American women that are now in Congress, and that's that's a first, and there are two, and that's quite exciting. So we can see the um, the the omni American story, uh, all sorts of different types of Americans um, getting elected. Well, now. 117 and it, it, women being elected to Congress yeah. at last count. How exciting is that? I mentioned that on my Instagram feed, and I was accused of being sort of practicing identity politics. And I basically said, you know, listen, we want our representatives to truly represent the diversity of this country. And that's not to suggest you vote for a woman simply because she's a woman. But uh, certainly women, women's voices need to be heard and exercised uh, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere. They're the majority of the country. 50.8 percent of the population, baby. Yeah, that have been really underrepresented, <laughs> only got the right to vote, as Doug well knows, uh, in 1920. So uh, that's uh, that's a little different than being kind of an interest group uh, to me. Well, you know what was underplayed is um, Jackie Rosen's victory in Nevada. She beat Dean Heller, a conservative Trumpian 
Republican. But Nevada now has two women senators in the last, you know, say eight years. Um, Nevada has become a blue state. Yeah, we talked all about that with a caller. Doug, there were a lot of conversations or speculation and accusations about voter suppression, particularly in Georgia and in Florida as well. Can you help us understand uh, if these were accusations or if there's evidence that this was really happening? Certainly, Brian Kemp, the secretary of state who was running against Stacey Abrams, was kind of in charge of these issues, which Jimmy Carter said was inappropriate. He should step down from that role during the election. But um, are we going to know for sure if there were cases of voter suppression? And how can you shed light on that for us? I think in Georgia, there are going to be uh, lawsuits looking into um, voter suppression and ways to disenfranchise the, the voting in the state of Georgia. You mentioned Katie Jimmy Carter, you know, back in 1962, I believe, he ran for the state Senate of Georgia and lost, but he sued and challenged and found that it was an illegal vote against him. And he ended up getting his political career up and going uh, by challenging. Uh, I see Stacey Abrams doing that. She's going to challenge this result uh, for the next month. But it's hard to do turnarounds in elections. Uh, You'd have to find true voter um, suppression um, causes. It's a legal issue at this point. We saw a real ratcheting up of racial rhetoric and racial tensions around this election. Um, Lots of nasty stuff said about Jewish and African-American candidates for office. As you mentioned, the president putting out an ad about Latinos that even Fox wouldn't run. When was the last time that we had so bitter a racial and cultural divide around an election? I think 1968 when... um, Nixon and Hubert Humphrey and George Wallace ran. Wallace became the insurgent third-party candidate and took a lot of Southern Democrats uh, along with him and later would bring a lot of Midwest voters to him, George Wallace. Wallace is a factor in our modern times because Trump has really modeled himself after a kind of demagogic fashion like Huey Long or a George Wallace of the South, Strom Thurmond. And Trump's also moved in on the Ross Perot vote. You know, Ross Perot got 19 percent of the vote in 1992 as a third party candidate. And that was all against NAFTA. The sucking sound of the jobs you hear are going to, you know, going leaving America for Mexico. Trump stole that message. So he's created a new identity for the Republican Party. And I guess if there's an upside for Donald Trump last night, it truly is Trump's party. I don't think there's anybody within the party structure that's going to be able to dent Donald Trump's power. It's going to be up to the Democrats to take him down in 2020. Doug, one of the long-term trends that we saw play out in this election was the defeat of moderate senators who can work across the aisle. Um, On the Republican side, we saw some retirements um, because Republican senators who opposed Trump couldn't win their primaries. Democratic senators who are more moderate couldn't get reelected in Trumpy states. Um, what does that portend for the Senate's ability to forge consensus and craft bipartisan legislation? I think the Senate is just going to be a rubber stamp for Donald Trump now. Uh, they're going to work hard to do more federal judges in place, and if they're lucky, get a, a yet a third Supreme Court nominee chosen perhaps down the line. I don't see much coming out of the Senate. Uh, 
That's why Dick Durbin will probably become the leading voice constantly saying that the Senate is worthless and does nothing and they're, they're not listening to the Democrats in the Senate. The all eyes now shift to Congress. The person of the moment is Nancy Pelosi, a survivor in American politics. Uh, she now is going to be having to herd all the Democratic cats, all the different um, characters together and decide whether they try to do an early 19 deal with Trump or just be uh, resist him and, and, and make Trump the foe of the American people. Uh, it's yet to be seen, but Pelosi is a new power broker. She's been one. For decades, but I think now we are, have to look at her as a giant in American history um, because she is the one big check on Donald Trump. And I'm sure he, she's going to be his newest, juiciest target, if you will. Yes, a, he'll try to do a deal maybe with her, and if she rejects it, he will double down, triple down, and uh, just pound away at Nancy Pelosi. And if we're wondering what Donald Trump's attitude towards her might be, he tweeted the day after the election, in all fairness, Nancy Pelosi deserves to be chosen Speaker of the House by the Democrats. If they give her a hard time, perhaps we will add some Republican votes. She has earned this great honor. Maybe a bit of a backhanded compliment yeah, there. I think I, he I, would I, prefer <laughs> that she's his foe. Well, I do think that it's in Donald Trump's interest right now, and he said to try to tone things down, to maybe try to do one big um, infrastructure um, deal with the Democrats. Um, basically, if he can convince Pelosi to take a timeout for a few months and then start in early 19 and get one big thing done, uh, the Democrats might be game for that. Um, that's what he's trying to do now. He's actually trying to charm Nancy Pelosi. If that gets rejected and instead there's this uh, attempt to get at his tax returns soon, um, once Congress goes um, back into session, then you'll see a war between Pelosi and Trump. It's, it's unsure which way it'll go. It'll end up badly between the two, but there might be a honeymoon there for about four or five months. There will be plenty to talk about or listen to on cable news, depending on your network of choice <laughs> as all of this unfolds. Doug, always great to have you and to talk to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks so much, Doug. Thanks, Katie and Brian. I enjoyed it. That does it for us today. The team that produces this show is producer Emma Morgenstern, associate producer Nora Ritchie, audio engineer Jared O'Connell. Special thanks to Andy Christens for pitch hitting on The Mix this week, as well as Chris Hoff and Paul Lanker at KQED, the venerable public radio station here in San Francisco. Brandon Martin in Houston, Lizzie Peabody in Washington. We are all over America. I was going to say a cast of thousands and a big round of applause to my assistant, Beth DeMoz, and my social media master, Julia Lewis. Jared Arnold composed our theme music. You can find me on Twitter at GoldsmithB. You can follow Katie's incessant Instagram, and I mean that in the nicest way possible. Uh, you can follow her on Twitter or Facebook. She's on all of those sites as, you guessed it, Katie Couric. If you want to tell us what you think about the show or ask us a question, please write to us at comments at couricpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you next week.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.